Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are top stories. The Trump and Biden campaigns are pivoting to the general election after the former president's decisive win in New Hampshire. But what does Nikki Haley have to say? All eyes on South Carolina next month as the race for president pushes on. Find out what some voters are saying about their choice of candidates. Also in Maine, Trump's name can stay on the ballot for now. The state's highest court is refusing to weigh in on his eligibility until the U.S. Supreme Court makes its decision first. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing pressure from all sides as the fight against Hamas continues. We speak to a former advisor to a U.S. ambassador to Israel about the latest developments. The FAA has cleared the way for Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes to start flying again, but Boeing's troubles continue. Find out about the latest issue. New Jersey commuters, listen up. There are plans to jack up the price to use tunnels to enter Manhattan. It's to reduce road congestion. Is the tax necessary? A professor's answer. UNESCO awarded blacksmiths in a certain area of Armenia with a special honor. Watch a seventh-generation blacksmith work to keep a traditional craft alive. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Good morning and welcome. Today is Thursday, January 25th. Yeah, and you know, we often talk about the importance of Trump's victory margin in New Hampshire, but Biden's victory margin is also important. Yeah, it's incredible how many people came out to show support. It was quite an unprecedented primary, even though no delegates were at stake for him. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, we're going to talk to a Democrat strategist later on about what Biden's performance means for him as the general election approaches. That's right. So stay tuned for that. For today's top news, though, the Trump and Biden campaigns are in a full scale pivot to the general election after the former president's double digit win in New Hampshire. But Trump rivals South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says not so fast. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are headed closer to a rematch. I've never been more optimistic about America's future. In what could be the longest general election contest in modern American history. With a decisive win in New Hampshire, Trump cemented a political comeback among Republicans. When you win Iowa and you win New Hampshire, they've never had a loss. There's never been. So we're not going to be the first, I can tell you. Even as his last remaining GOP rival vowed to press on, raising pointed questions about Trump's competence and electability. Most Americans do not want a rematch between Biden and Trump. The first party to retire its 80-year-old candidate is going to be the party that wins this election. Tonight, Haley is back home in South Carolina, not to lick her wounds, but to soldier on, even as another Trump-Biden showdown looks all but imminent. The Republican primary calendar is barely underway, with Nevada in two weeks and South Carolina still one month away, long before a crush of 15 states on Super Tuesday. But Trump advisors insisted it's time to turn to a battle with Biden, even as the former president made clear Haley was still squarely on his mind and perhaps still in his way. Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory she did very poorly. Despite Biden's own deep political challenges, he remains a central part of Haley's increasingly complicated argument. They know 
know Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat. She's making the case in New South Carolina TV ads that it's time to turn the page. Biden too old. Trump too much chaos. A rematch no one wants. There's a better choice for a better America. Republicans delivered a double-digit victory to Trump in New Hampshire, but primary voters overall sent warning signs for his standing in a fall election. Haley won big among college graduates and independents, and 42% of voters said Trump would not be fit for the presidency if convicted of a crime. But loyalty among hardcore Republicans and Trump's swift coalescing of party leaders has powered a rebound for the history books. The reason we have support is because they are so bad at what they're doing and so evil and they're destroying our country. And meanwhile, CNN's exit poll shows young Republicans made up Trump's strongest age group on Tuesday's primary. 60% of voters aged 18 to 29 voted for Trump, a sign that the former president is expanding his voter base in areas where he previously lacked. With New Hampshire behind us, both Trump and Haley have their eyes set on South Carolina. We take a look at what some voters are saying in the Palmetto State. At Coastal Coffee Roasters in Somerville, a cup of coffee this time of year comes with a splash of politics. It's been a rough few years. The Palmetto State's Republican primary a month from today. We'll head out to South Carolina, where I think we're going to win easily. Nikki Haley, fresh off another decisive loss to former President Donald Trump, looking to voters in the state that elected her governor twice to keep her in this race. But voters here, over and over again, told us they've already made their choice. Donald Trump, 200%. I'll be voting for Donald Trump. Support for Trump remains strong with Republicans in South Carolina, despite his legal troubles and the fact it's now a one-on-one -on -one race with their former governor. I just think that Trump is a stronger presidential figure than she is. I think she should drop out, apologize to President Trump, and join forces so we can try to save this country. Voters frequently citing Trump's long list of high-profile South Carolina endorsements. This election is over. None more than Senator Tim Scott, who was appointed by Haley in 2012. I think there's going to be a surprise where I think Trump's going to landslide. Slide it. Yeah, I do. With Tim Scott backing him, I do. But not everyone is ready to forfeit the race. Stephanie Bennett says she's technically undecided, but likes Haley. It's her track record as the governor here, and then what she did on the United Nations. And yet she's worried in a month her vote won't matter. I wonder if people aren't going to go into it with a preconceived notion of he's already won. You know, with I just that is a fear. Like get out and vote. Don't think he's already won because I don't think he has. Former President Trump can stay on the ballot in Maine, at least until the Supreme Court makes a decision on his eligibility. Maine's highest court yesterday rejected an appeal from the state's top election official to review the case. Maine's top court is refusing to make a decision on former President Trump's ballot status. That's after Secretary of State Shenna Bellows asked the court to review her decision to remove Trump from the ballot. In a unanimous decision, the Maine Supreme Court upheld a lower court ruling, which would require Bellows to wait for the Supreme Court to rule on the Colorado case first. That means Trump can stay on the state's ballot in the meantime. 
Bellows had argued delaying the decision could cause confusion for voters during the state's primary, which is coming up on March 5th. If the SCOTUS decision comes after that, voters could cast ballots for Trump that wouldn't end up being tallied. However, Maine's highest court said they would only add to the confusion by ruling before the Supreme Court. Bellows removed Trump from the ballot last year, citing the 14th Amendment, which bars any public official previously engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office. And the weight of evidence that I reviewed indicated uh, that it was in fact an insurrection and Mr. Trump engaged in that insurrection under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. She argued that Trump knowingly incited an attack on the Capitol to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. But lawyers for the former president say Bellows lacked the authority to rule on his eligibility. His legal team said in a statement that Bellows is, quote, a completely biased Democrat partisan and called her actions election interference. Trump is facing similar challenges in more than 30 states. Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis reportedly hired a service to track media coverage of herself and her office days before announcing the probe into former President Trump. The Daily Caller News Foundation reports that it obtained documents that show on February 8, 2021, Willis received an invoice for a $10,000 contract with a New York-based media monitoring service. Three days later, on February 11th, she announced in a letter to four state officials, including Governor Brian Kemp, that she had opened a criminal probe into Trump. Fulton County data shows a one-time payment of $10,000 on May 28, 2021 for the service. The service had sent multiple past due invoices. Willis reportedly said in an email to the company, until your company jumps through the county hoops, it is impossible to pay you. A former President Donald Trump trade advisor is expected to be sentenced today. Peter Navarro was convicted last year for not complying with a 2022 subpoena. It was issued by the former House Select Committee that investigated the January 6th Capitol breach. Last week, a judge denied his request to redo the trial. Navarro's attorneys had argued that jurors may have been influenced by political protesters when they took a break during deliberations before announcing the verdict. They claimed it was grounds for a mistrial. Federal prosecutors want a six-month prison sentence for Navarro. His attorneys, however, are asking for a sentence of no more than six months probation and a $200 fine. Turning now to allegations of anti-Semitism on college campuses, lawmakers want answers. As part of an investigation, a House committee sent a letter to the University of Pennsylvania yesterday demanding the school turn over documents related to anti-Semitic incidents. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the probe. Today, Representative Virginia Fox, the chairwoman of the Republican-led House Education Committee, is requesting that UPenn respond to the document request by no later than February 7th. The committee is seeking a wide range of documents, including reports of anti-Semitic activity on campus since early 2021. It wants information on how UPenn responds to hate crimes, disciplinary actions against staff and students related to alleged targeting of Jews, documents and financial information linked to a Palestinian literature festival held on campus last year, and information on foreign donations, including donations from Qatar. In a letter to UPenn, Fox wrote, We have grave concerns regarding the inadequacy of Penn's response to anti-Semitism on its campus. 
The congresswoman cited a Brandeis University research study from December. The study surveyed Jewish students at 51 campuses in the wake of Hamas's October 7th terror attack. It ranked UPenn in its worst category of highest anti-Semitic hostility. Fox also called out UPenn over the Palestine Rights Literature Festival. The university hosted it on campus in September 2023. Multiple Penn academic departments and centers sponsored it. Fox wrote that the festival's director, Susan Abuhawa, labeled Israelis human garbage and also allegedly said that she takes comfort in knowing that this colonial apartheid state will eventually be wiped off the map. Lawmakers launched a formal investigation into UPenn, Harvard University, and MIT last month following disastrous testimony about anti-Semitism from the leaders of the three schools. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? Liz McGill stepped down last month as UPenn's president in the wake of her testimony on Capitol Hill. Scott Bach, the chair of the Board of Trustees, also stepped down. A UPenn spokesperson told CNN in a statement that the university has received the document request and will respond after they complete a review of it. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The border dispute between Texas and the federal government continues. Our sister media, the Epic Times, is in the Lone Star State, bringing us firsthand reporting. Meanwhile, Texas Senator Ted Cruz gives a heated answer while speaking with NTD in Washington. NTD's Arian Pastar has a border update. Homeland Security sent yet another letter to Texas demanding unrestricted access to Shelby Park. The department writes the state has alleged that Shelby Park is open to the public, but we do not believe this statement is accurate, adding that Texas continues to restrict U.S. Border Patrol's access to the park. Now, the letter also cites a Monday Supreme Court ruling, which says that the federal government is allowed to remove razor wire deployed by Texas. And on Tuesday, a spokesperson for Texas Department of Public Safety commented on this Supreme Court ruling while talking to our sister media, The Epoch Times. Watch. Uh, Supreme Court decision gives Border Patrol the legal authority to cut the Constantino wire. Now, it doesn't change operations as far as with DPS or National Guard and what we're doing right now at Shelby Park. Um, there is still restricted access uh, to US, U.S. Border Patrol to enter the park. Texas, meanwhile, continues to install more fencing and razor wire. Texas Senator Ted Cruz on Wednesday told NTD he supports what state authorities are doing. And so Texas is stepping up to defend our state. I'm glad we are. But the reason Texas is doing so is because Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats affirmatively want this invasion. The agency doesn't currently have a plan to take down the wire, although the administration went to court over the issue. So the clearing process will start immediately, or how does that so work? So it allows us to have access to the border. So Okay, so no timetable right now and nope. when that operation is over? No. Nope. The Biden administration previously explained that Border Patrol needs unrestricted access to all areas in case of emergencies. That's, for example, to provide first aid to law enforcement or to illegal immigrants crossing the river. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Up next, the U.S. sends a Navy warship through the Taiwan Strait, pledging commitment to freedom of navigation. Plus, a congressional delegation in Taiwan today with a promise of firm support in facing aggression from the Chinese regime. The U.S. Navy intercepts Houthi missiles fired at a Maersk container ship, 
plus strikes on another Houthi launch site in Yemen. And NSC spokesman John Kirby reacts. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing pressure from all sides as the fight against Hamas continues. We speak to a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel to take his ta get his take on the latest developments. Welcome back. The U.S. sailed a Navy warship through the Taiwan Strait yesterday as a congressional delegation set out to visit the island for the first time since its presidential election. The Navy stated its destroyer used a corridor beyond the territorial sea of any coastal state. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the pledge for freedom of navigation and the U.S. delegation's promise to Taiwan. The USS John Finn transited the Taiwan Strait Wednesday as a U.S. delegation met to reaffirm U.S. support after the island's democratic elections. The Navy said the destroyer's transit demonstrates the U.S.'s commitment to upholding freedom of navigation for all nations as a principle, stating no member of the international community should be intimidated or coerced into giving up their rights and freedoms. The Chinese regime accused the U.S. of trying to undermine peace and stability. Taiwan's defense ministry said it monitored the U.S. warship south through the strait, calling the situation normal. The U.S. Navy's last announced passage of a warship through the strait was in early November last year. It was joined by a Canadian frigate at the time. Leaders of the U.S. Congressional Taiwan Caucus visited Taipei Thursday, saying Taiwan can rest assured they have Washington's firm support. We are proud of the people of Taiwan. We are proud of the relationship, and as strong as that relationship has always been, rest assured, it will even be stronger. Taiwan's president-elect Lai Ching-de asked for continued U.S. support and deeper bilateral cooperation. I also hope that the two co-chairs and our friends in the U.S. Congress can continue to support Taiwan in bolstering its self-defense capabilities to jointly safeguard the peace and prosperity across the Taiwan Strait, as well as the region. The U.S. is Taiwan's most important international backer and arms seller. The Chinese regime views Taiwan as its own territory, despite never having ruled the island. It's threatening to use force to bring it under its control. Taiwan's defense ministry said it detected 18 Chinese Air Force planes operating around Taiwan last week in joint combat readiness patrols with Chinese warships, the first large-scale military activity since Taiwan's election. It is not the people of Taiwan or the people of the United States that have chosen to cha change the status quo. We see what is coming out of the PRC out of Beijing in their level of aggression, both here across the strait, but across the region. And as democracies, as people who believe in freedom, it is incumbent upon us to address those aggressions. Washington cut formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan in 1979, but U.S. law requires it to ensure the island has the means to defend itself and treat all outside threats with grave concern. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And more trouble in the Red Sea. U.S. Central Command says Houthi terrorists fired three anti-ship missiles at the mayor's container ship yesterday. CENTCOM says two of the missiles were shot down and the third had impacted nearby. 
Mayersk said nearby explosions forced two ships from its U.S. subsidiary to turn around. The logistics company says the ships were carrying U.S. military supplies. The company says it's suspending Red Sea transits by its U.S. flag vessels. There were no injuries or damage reported. Central Command says two more Houthi ready-to-launch missiles were destroyed in strikes yesterday. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is acting in self-defense. He called the Houthi attacks an unpredictable and dynamic in nature. Kirby stated U.S. strikes will continue as long as the Houthis continue their attacks. Israeli defense forces are meeting strong resistance in the southern Gaza Strip as they try to defeat the Hamas terrorist group. And even after facing their deadliest day in the war, Israeli troops appeared determined to keep pressing forward. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. On Wednesday, Israel Defense Forces released a video of a Hamas lookout who was preparing to attack Israeli forces. And then the IDF struck the target. Israel Defense Forces are facing strong resistance in Khan Yunus, one of the final strongholds for Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. But despite the intense battles, the IDF continues pressing forward, even just days after Israel's bloodiest day in the war. On Tuesday, Hamas released what's believed to be a video of Monday's deadly attack. The video shows a terrorist firing a rocket-propelled grenade at this building, where IDF troops were said to be inside, setting up explosives to demolish it. And reportedly, that building and a building next to it collapsed, killing 21 Israeli troops. And even after such a devastating loss, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears undeterred as he spoke at Israel's parliament on Wednesday. We have set out the objectives of the war, and they remain in force. There is not, nor will there be, any compromise on what affects the safeguarding of our existence and future for generations. Also on Wednesday, Netanyahu met with the UK's foreign minister, David Cameron, who also met with family members of the hostages held captive in the Gaza Strip. Many of the family members have been advocating for a ceasefire to release the hostages. But an Israeli government spokesperson on Wednesday said this. There will be no ceasefire. In the past, there were pauses for humanitarian purposes. That agreement was breached by Hamas. Also on Wednesday, Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan met with the president of Iran, which backs the terrorist groups currently fighting Israel. The terrorist groups have also been attacking U.S. forces in Iraq, Iran's neighboring country. The Iran-backed group Qatab Hezbollah attacked U.S. forces at Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq on Saturday and Wednesday, injuring at least four U.S. personnel. In response, the U.S. struck the terrorist group's headquarters, storage and training facilities for rockets, missiles, and one-way attack drone capabilities. Iraq now finds itself in a tough position, being an ally of both the United States and Iran. A spokesperson for Iraq's prime minister said the strikes undermine years of cooperation, violates Iraq's sovereignty, and contributes to an irresponsible escalation. Jason Perry, NTD News. At the same time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing pressure from all sides as disagreements on how to continue the war against Hamas builds. 
To shed some light on the challenges he's currently facing, we're bringing in Arie Lightstone, a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Good morning, Arie. Good to see you. So first, the war cabinet in Israel now is challenging Netanyahu's goal. This, uh, summer, or more specifically, Eisenkot was saying that eradicating Hamas and getting the hostages back, that just won't work hand in hand. So do you think Netanyahu will be making concessions there? Yeah, I mean, they likely are two different impossibilities. You can't eradicate Hamas. Hamas is an ideology. When Prime Minister Netanyahu discusses eradicating Hamas, he wants to degrade their capability to be the primary source of influence in Gaza and to eliminate their capability of being able to attack Israel again. Those are not incompatible with getting the hostages back. Israel pro-offered a uh, opportunity to Hamas just two days ago, saying that they would have a ceasefire for two months in exchange for a all-for-all all remaining hostages, and that was rejected. I believe Israel's conclusion from that is the only way to be able to bring the hostages home is to create enormous pressure uh, on Hamas, even more than they have so far. So it sounds like what you're saying is that there is a little bit of a definition difference there. So, But many are saying yes. now that Netanyahu is clinging to his office because calls for re-elections, for example, are getting louder. How do you think that this influences Netanyahu's decisions and calculations he makes in the war? Uh, parliamentary democracies are messy. Uh, at any point in time, there could be a no-confidence vote. And certainly after the tragedy of October 7th, there will be a call for uh, uh, responsibility, likely for everybody. When that call happens is unclear. I think the country is fairly united right now. It used to be 98 percent. It's probably in the high 80s today in terms of being able to complete the job of eradicating or destroying Hamas's ability to attack Israel again. And that's without even addressing the challenge of the North. Today, Israel has over 200,000 citizens that are not in their homes. I believe until the security situation is resolved, nobody really wants to talk politics. Again, politicians will talk politics, but I think the people of Israel are united in getting the security situation resolved before going back to the polls. I see. So let's talk about also the exit strategy in the day after the war. What do you think will Gaza look like medium to long term? Well, here's sort of the issue. The concept of what happens the day after the war wasn't addressed with the United States of America and our allies in the process of World War II, right? There wasn't a concern in the process of Vietnam what happens the day after. Israel was attacked, breaking a ceasefire. Hamas broke a ceasefire on October 7th in the morning, the worst single day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Uh, Israel's first issue is to go ahead and make sure that something like that can never happen again. After that happens, there's an enormous opportunity for the rest of the world who's uh, screaming and clamoring for Palestinian rights and Palestinian civilians to be able to step forth and present a new way forward. What is very clear is that the old way doesn't work. It can't be under the influence of people who want to encourage and finance and grow terrorism. And it can't be under the thumb of actual terrorists. Until there's a solution for what that looks like, I think all options are on the table. Unfortunately, none of them are great options today. Hmm. There are a lot of different voices, though, and a lot of disagreements, discussions. So do you think, in the end, could Palestinian statehood be a possibility that Israel is considering? Uh, Israel certainly is considering everything. I think it would be an enormous mistake to reward terrorism with statehood. If you have actual states people step forward and say, hey, I want to accomplish something, something similar to what Donald Trump laid out 
in his deal of the century, January 28th of 2020, nobody's risen to the occasion and says, I will run a state, I will do it without kleptocracy, I will do it without incentivizing people monetarily to murder other people, I'll do it with actual rule of law and a democracy that actually votes. If anybody does any of those things, I think that there would be a conversation about what that would look like. Okay. But today, it's not possible. Okay, so um, then how much influence and leverage does, for instance, the U.S. and U.N. with their decision schedule for tomorrow have, just quickly, um, in a couple of sure. seconds? If you the can. United Nations should have negative influence on anything corrupt, terrible, horrible organization. The United States of America should have enormous influence. It is a moral, just, and superpower in the world that is Israel's best friend. Where the United States of America leads, Israel would be wise to at least listen carefully to what that looks like. Thank you very much, Area Lightstone. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Stay with us. Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets can take to the skies again soon after being grounded for safety inspections. But Boeing's troubles aren't over yet. Get those details coming up. School choice, what it means for your children's education and why some parents for fighting, for fighting hard for it. We ha have the details from an expert coming up. Welcome back. The Federal Aviation Administration approving an inspection process that will allow airlines to fly their Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes again. That's after all MAX 9 models were grounded following a scary Alaska Airlines incident where the side panel blew out mid-flight. That's as the CEO of Boeing met behind closed doors with lawmakers on Capitol Hill yesterday as the company comes under intensified scrutiny. More. Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes could soon be back in the air. The Federal Aviation Administration approved inspection criteria for the plane that would return it to service. But the agency also took aim at Boeing, saying the Alaska Airlines incident must never happen again. The FAA said Boeing can't expand production of MAX models until all quality control issues have been resolved. The agency gave no estimate of how long that limitation would last. Alaska Airlines CEO Ben Minicucci criticized Boeing in an interview with NBC News. He said the in-flight blowout should never have happened. We found some loose bolts on uh, many of our MAX 9s. So many? Yeah. Uh, so those are things that are going to be rectified uh, through the inspection process. Meanwhile, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun met with senators on Capitol Hill yesterday. He's there to answer questions and assure lawmakers Boeing planes are safe. We fly safe planes. We don't Easy put cuts. airplanes in the air that we don't have 100% confidence in. I'm here today in the spirit of transparency to, number one, recognize the seriousness of what you just asked. Number two, to share everything I can with our Capitol Hill interests um, and answer all their questions because they have a lot of them. Federal inspectors are on site at Boeing's plant in Renton, Washington, where the 737 MAX 9s are made. Company executives are pausing production at that facility today to focus on quality control. Alaska Airlines plans to have its grounded planes back in service by Friday, and United Airlines is aiming for Sunday. And more problems for Boeing now, this time with one of its 757 airplanes. Yesterday, the nose wheel of a Delta jet in Atlanta fell off just before takeoff. 
control tower operators saw the incident and notified the pilot. The plane was bound for Bogota, Colombia. Passengers and crew were transferred to a replacement plane and continued on to their destination. No injuries were reported. Delta confirmed the incident and apologized for any inconvenience. From transportation to education, five universities have agreed to settle an ongoing financial aid lawsuit against more than a dozen other schools. In new court filings, Yale, Columbia, Duke, Brown and Emory universities will pay over $100 million combined to settle their portions of the case. In 2022, 16 top universities were sued by five former students who claimed those schools were in violation of antitrust law. The lawsuit alleges the universities ignored their pledge to not weigh a student's ability to pay tuition when considering whether or not to accept. The schools deny any wrongdoing or liability in the settlement. Columbia and Duke agree to pay out $24 million each. Brown is settling for $19.5 million, while Yale and Emory agreed to settle for $18.5 million each. According to attorneys, there are 10 remaining schools who have not yet settled. School choice is a policy that allows parents to take their children's education funding to a provider of their choice, giving them alternatives to local public school options, such as charter schools and magnet schools and options like school vouchers. That's right, and to learn more about parents' fight for school choice, I spoke with Corey DeAngelis, a senior fellow at the American Federation for Children. He's also the author of the book, The Parent Revolution, Rescuing, Rescuing Your Kids from the Radicals Running Our Schools. Yeah, look, education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution. We should fund students as opposed to systems. Families should be able to take their children's education dollars to wherever they're getting an education, to the schools that best align with their values. That could be a public school, but you should be able to take that money to a private school too. So if they would be able to take that money to other places, so how, uh, explain to me how it is supposed to improve schools and student performance. Well, school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats, and competition works in higher education, pre-K, every other industry. It works in K-12 education as well. We have 26 studies on the topic now, actually 29 studies, 26 of the 29 studies that exist on the topic find positive effects of private school choice competition on the outcomes in the public schools, too. It's a win-win solution. It's good for parents and families, obviously. They get more choice, but it's also good for the the students who remain in the public school system because of those competitive pressures. I see. So let's delve into the details a little bit here. You, you say that it gives parents more choice. So what are the options that it would give parents if they didn't want to send their children to public schools? In the U.S., the government schools spend over $18,000 per student per year, much higher than the private school tuition on average, which is about twelve or 13000 nationwide. But that funding would go a fraction of that funding, typically about half, let's say about eight or 9,000, would go into a savings account directed by the parent, and you could use that for private school tuition and fees, but you could use it for any other approved education expenditure as well. That could be a homeschool curriculum, it could be at a charter school, it could be for private tutoring or a homeschool co-op, a micro school, the list goes on and on and on, but it's any approved education expenditure. It's the gold standard the purest form of funding students directly and empowering parents. And states are doing this all across the country right now. We've had 10 states go universal on school choice in the past two years alone, meaning 
every single family is eligible to be able to take their funding elsewhere. I see. So you're saying that parents ha have been winning this battle. So why do you think that? Well, it's because the teachers unions overplayed their hand by pushing to keep the schools closed starting in 2020. You had the, the two major teachers unions, the NEA and the a AFT, they lobbied the CDC to make it more difficult to reopen schools. They were fear-mongering every step of the way. You had local affiliates even uh, claiming that the push to reopen schools is rooted in racism, sexism, and misogyny. That was the Chicago Teachers Union. At the same time, they had a board member vacationing in Puerto Rico while railing against going back to work. So families got to see that the school system didn't care all that much about them and their kids. But the side benefit of the school closures and the Zoom learning, remote learning, which really should have been called remotely learning because not a lot of learning was going on, was that families got to see what was happening in the classroom. And parents who thought their kids were in good public schools because of test scores and their metrics on the state uh, exam, they start to see another dimension of school quality that's arguably more important, which is whether the school's curriculum aligns with families' values. Well, thank you so much, Corey DeAngelis, for giving us your take on this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Coming up, an Alabama death row inmate will be executed today after the U.S. Supreme Court declined to intervene. His execution involves a method never tried before in the U.S. The Florida House passed a bill that would block kids under 16 from using certain social media apps. What does the proposal include, and is it likely to become law? Tunnels into Manhattan from Jersey are pretty expensive, but that may change. They could become very expensive. Find out the controversy behind New York City's planned congestion fee. We go investigate. Welcome back. The U.S. Supreme Court declined to halt the execution of an Alabama death row inmate yesterday. They didn't offer any explanation in their brief order. A similar request to halt the execution was also denied by a lower court. This clears the way for the first ever U.S. execution using nitrogen hypoxia. Kenneth Smith is due to be executed sometime within a 30-hour window starting today for his part in a 1988 murder for hire. In November 2022, Smith underwent an execution by a lethal injection attempt, which failed. His lawyers say Smith's execution is only the second time in U.S. history a state is attempting to execute an inmate again after a first-time failure. The United Nations also weighed in, saying it's concerned that nitrogen hypoxia could result in a painful and humiliating death. Alabama, however, argues that it's, quote, perhaps the most humane method of execution ever devised. Florida's House passed legislation yesterday to create some of the strictest social media prohibitions in the U.S. It would prohibit anyone under the age of 16 from using many platforms. 
The bill didn't name any specific apps, only specifying those with addictive, harmful or deceptive design features. If the bill passes, it may leave Florida vulnerable to lawsuits from major tech firms. It would require them to use a third party for age verification services and terminate the accounts of users under 16. The proposal doesn't include websites used for email, messaging or texts, along with streaming services, news, sports or entertainment sites and online shopping or gaming. The bill still needs to pass a Senate vote, but leaders there have expressed support for the idea. And a dramatic rescue in Northern California, caught on video. The California Highway Patrol says a woman was stranded for 15 hours overnight on top of her overturned car. She tried driving through a swollen creek following heavy rains but underestimated how deep it was. Eventually, a camper in the area saw the car and called for help. Helicopter rescuers from the local fire department airlifted her out of the creek. She was then transported to a local hospital with minor injuries. And in transportation news, a congestion fee possibly coming to commuters traveling from New Jersey into New York City soon. Yes, New York is poised to roll out its Central Business District tolling program. We all know traffic in the city can be pretty unforgiving at times, but some economists like a professor at George Mason University are saying this congestion fee doesn't make sense. That's because he says as the city recovers from the pandemic, it would want more crowding on the streets, not less. I went out to investigate and spoke to a different professor in an urban management department for some insight on this. Take a look. I'm under the Hudson River traveling eastbound in the Lincoln Tunnel from New Jersey to New York City. Right now, there's already a hefty toll to do this. But if the New York MTA's congestion pricing plan that has preliminary approval actually goes through, you'll have to pay an extra $15 to go through this tunnel or the Holland Tunnel into Manhattan. Let's find out if this fee is necessary. And we're joined by Shlomo Angel, professor of city planning at New York University. Professor Angel, thank you so much for your time. Do you think that New York City has a congestion problem that would warrant this fee? No. Uh, I think that congestion has a way of settling itself and that if people want to travel in congested lanes, they have a certain patience and when they run out of patience, they do something else. Right, I see what you mean, tapping into the more of the free market principles and allowing natural forces to shape how the roads are used. New York City stands to benefit from this, about a billion dollars a year that they say will go towards their MTA budget. Do you think that is the real reason why this is going through? Different cities that have instituted congestion pricing have done so for different reasons. Some people have actually, like Singapore, have done it to, for better use of the roads. Other people, for environmental reasons, to have less cars polluting the air. Uh, just doing it for, to raise taxes is a rather unique reason for doing congestion pricing. On the environmental front, the congestion plan faces two lawsuits that may derail it. One from the state of New Jersey, the other from Fort Lee, New Jersey. They both involve problems stemming from likely congestion and thus pollution at the George Washington Bridge if people use this crossing to bypass the fee. In December, Governor Kathy Hochul spoke in Manhattan about the plan. Anybody sick and tired of gridlock in New York City? Yes. Well, then you love congestion pricing, right? Yes. More praise from the governor. First responders navigate more efficiently, cleaner air, and improved transit system overall. 
However, the architect of the congestion tax, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, said implementing it now would be counterproductive as circumstances have changed and it will cause people to stay home in this era of remote work. The state controller and New York Mayor Eric Adams issued reports saying that's costing the city a lot already. Professor Angel, there's been a lot of backlash from mayors in Jersey to this congestion pricing plan. Do you think New York City collaborated with them enough when they were making this plan? The New York metropolitan area is one single metropolitan labor market. Its productivity, its incredible productivity is a result of people having access to better jobs and firms having access to better people for 22 million people. That is one single economic unit. And that relates to people coming from far away to work in New York City and people going from New York City to work far away. This is not being helped by the congestion pricing system. In the spring, the MTA is expected to have a final vote on the plan. The actual implementation may depend on any adjustments made or settlements with New Jersey on the lawsuits. Just ahead, a seventh-generation Armenian blacksmith belongs to a region of artisans being honored by UNESCO. See a master craftsman at work and hear his story when we come back. Good to have you back. A man in Armenia is keeping alive the dying art of blacksmithing. His traditional craft received recognition in 2023. It's inscribed on UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. This is Girmi, Armenia, a city where buildings are adorned with intricate metalwork. Garak Papoyan is a blacksmith in the city. He's mastered skills passed down from generation to generation. His father, grandfather, and great-great-grandfathers carefully crafted items such as gates, doors, and chandeliers. From an early childhood, you'd see your father working and you would have to help. And if it is in your blood, you love it. You come, you enter, you get dirty, and slowly, slowly, you automatically learn it. And you slowly start doing, helping, and you feel good that you can help your father. And this is how you become a blacksmith. Traditional blacksmithing is unlike modern metalworking. Papoyan is worried that the craft could soon disappear. You know how it is now? If you go and ask outside, there are many blacksmiths. But in reality, it is a disappearing craft. If someone has a welding machine or a grinder, they start creating something like blacksmiths do, and they call themselves blacksmiths. But pure blacksmithing might disappear soon. Everybody prefers working with easy machines now and they forget about the old ways, and that is it. UNESCO seems to feel the same way. Last month, the agency formally recognized the craft and inscribed it on the intangible cultural heritage list. 
Jiumri itself became an area of artistic blacksmithing, not just a place of preservation of blacksmithing traditions, but an area of artistic blacksmithing. Their creations have become an important part of the city's architectural identity. One Armenian cultural anthropologist says UNESCO's designation will encourage the city's blacksmiths to find new apprentices. The registration for the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage List has increased the responsibility of the masters of Giumri's blacksmithing tradition. They must preserve the craft and pass it on, create new students, and the craft must be continued in the city. As for Popoyan, he hopes to keep the tradition alive by teaching his nephew. I'm glad UNESCO recognizes this. I really enjoy artisanship like that. And the quality back then, if you make it by hand, is so much better. It's so much durable, right? Yeah, you got to preserve that art form. And you know, that's just a rugged guy over there. He's smashing <laughs> that metal with those sparks flying. No safety glasses. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you notice. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, we'll head into a quick 30-second break, but we will be right back. So stay tuned. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning here. Today's top stories, the Trump and Biden campaigns are pivoting to the general election after the former president's decisive win in New Hampshire. But what does Nikki Haley have to say? And Maine's top court won't rule on Trump's ballot eligibility, dismissing Secretary of State Shanna Bellows' appeal for a quick decision. A former Trump trade advisor faces sentencing today for contempt of Congress. Find out what he's facing and how it relates to the House probe into January 6th. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing pressure from all sides as the fight against Hamas continues. We speak to a former advisor to a U.S. ambassador to Israel about the latest developments. A House committee wants answers on alleged anti-Semitism at Penn University. Find out what a congresswoman is demanding from the school in a new probe. Some good news for Boeing as the FAA lifts the 737 MAX 9 groundings. But there are conditions attached, plus a new incident with another one of its models. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Thursday, January 25th. And in today's top news, the Trump and Biden campaigns are in a full-scale pivot to the general election after the former president's double-digit win in New Hampshire. But Trump rival South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley says not so fast. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are headed closer to a rematch. I've never been more optimistic about America's future. In what could be the longest general election contest in modern American history. With a decisive win in New Hampshire, Trump cemented a political comeback among Republicans. When you win 
Iowa and you win New Hampshire, they've never had a loss. There's never been. So we're not going to be the first, I can tell you. Even as his last remaining GOP rival vowed to press on, raising pointed questions about Trump's competence and electability. Most Americans do not want a rematch between Biden and Trump. The first party to retire its 80-year-old candidate is going to be the party that wins this election. Tonight, Haley is back home in South Carolina, not to lick her wounds, but to soldier on, even as another Trump-Biden showdown looks all but imminent. The Republican primary calendar is barely underway, with Nevada in two weeks and South Carolina still one month away, long before a crush of 15 states on Super Tuesday. But Trump advisors insisted it's time to turn to a battle with Biden, even as the former president made clear Haley was still squarely on his mind and perhaps still in his way. Who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory. She did very poorly. Despite Biden's own deep political challenges, he remains a central part of Haley's increasingly complicated argument. They know Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat. She's making the case in New South Carolina TV ads that it's time to turn the page. Biden too old. Trump too much chaos. A rematch no one wants. There's a better choice for a better America. Republicans delivered a double-digit victory to Trump in New Hampshire, but primary voters overall sent warning signs for his standing in a fall election. Haley won big among college graduates and independents, and 42% of voters said Trump would not be fit for the presidency if convicted of a crime. But loyalty among hardcore Republicans and Trump's swift coalescing of party leaders has powered a rebound Thank for the history much. books. The reason we have support is because they are so bad at what they're doing and so evil and they're destroying our country. And meanwhile, CNN's exit poll shows young Republicans made up Trump's strongest age group in Tuesday's primary. 60% of voters aged 18 to 29 voted for Trump, a sign that the former president is expanding his voter base in areas where he previously lacked. And now we get some analysis on the New Hampshire Democratic primary results with Robert Patillo, a Democrat strategist and civil rights attorney. Robert, thank you so much for getting up early and talking to us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Should Biden be pleased or concerned with the results in New Hampshire's Democratic primary, considering he is apparently falling short of that 80% threshold that both former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama crossed? Well, New Hampshire is an interesting situation because the Democratic Party decided to move its nominating process to begin in South Carolina this year. Um, that's because South Carolina represents a new demographic for the uh, for the party, where you're being more diverse, more African American, more minorities, more mi more women. And in protest, the uh, New Hampshire decided to go ahead with their primary. Joe Biden's only write-in candidate. His name is not on the ballot in uh, New Hampshire, and that's why we're seeing his numbers lagging behind some of his predecessors. But he still won with 60 of the vote even as a writing candidate. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the U.S. representatives from New Hampshire, she was saying that write-ins are pretty difficult to do, and she pointed to Alaska Senator Lisa Mikowski's election in which she got 39% of the vote, which was the most in write-in history. So Biden pulling in about 56% of the vote could be seen as pretty good here. Is it likely that a large number of Democrat voters in the Granite State switched over to the GOP primary in order to vote for Haley and protest to Trump? 
I think we saw some of that, but I don't think that was in large numbers. I think what we saw for Haley was very much that um, protest vote against Trump. There's really the Republican Party has coalesced into the MAGA party, starting in 2008 with the defeat of John McCain. We saw the rise of the Tea Party in 2012, then the rise of Trump in 2016. I think this marks the wholesale takeover of the Republican Party by the MAGA movement. Now there are MAGAs, and then there are very few rhinos left. And that has to be the reality for the Republican Party going forward, understanding that this is the policy, this is the agenda. The America First agenda is the Republican agenda, and there's no more running away from it, no more hiding from it, and that's what Joe Biden is attempting to exploit in this campaign. Okay, so Robert, did Biden emerge from New Hampshire in rather good position for the general election, or is there work to be done to make his case to voters? I think there's absolutely work to be done. You look at the poll numbers for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, that they're uh, underwater, under 40% in many polls. Uh, many young people, many African-Americans are very upset with the Biden administration for not delivering on some of their promises from the 2020 campaign. Of course, Palestine remains a huge issue among young voters, student loan cancelization, voting rights, etc. But they still have six to eight months to put forward legislation to get people back on board. And what we saw in 2022 was a legislative kick over the course of the summer that was able to rescue the midterm camp, uh, midterm elections for them. And I think we'll see something similar this election cycle. If we push through immigration reform, Ukraine funding, Israel funding, uh, bring an end to both of those wars, I think those numbers turn around. You touch on the wars, some other concerns surrounding Biden's bid for re-election are his age and also inflation. What's Biden's biggest challenge and how is he going to overturn it? Well, he, he can't do anything about his age. Uh, if Biden figures out a way to get younger, I think he'll be up for more than just president. He might be up for, you know, maybe king or something. Uh, but when it comes to inflation, you just have to look at the numbers. We've had 64% reduction in inflation since 2021, 11 consecutive months of re inflation reduction after the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act with Republicans Wholesale said would not reduce inflation. Inflation went from 9.1% down to 3.2% nationwide. What we are seeing right now is price gouging by major corporations to make up for a little profit they lost during the pandemic. You can get a uh, uh, you can get a hash brown from McDonald's now for four dollars, not because the hash brown costs four dollars to make, but because they know you'll pay it. And until we can get corporations to stop gouging customers for what uh, for extra money, we're going to continue to see prices be up. And I think we'll see executive action on that. Robert Patillo, Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney, thank you for your time. Thank you. With New Hampshire behind us, both Trump and Haley have their eyes set on South Carolina. We take a look at what some voters are saying in the Palmetto State. At Coastal Coffee Roasters in Somerville, a cup of coffee this time of year comes with a splash of politics. It's been a rough few years. The Palmetto State's Republican primary a month from today. We'll head out to South Carolina, where I think we're going to win easily. Nikki Haley, fresh off another decisive loss to former President Donald Trump, looking to voters in the state that elected her governor twice to keep her in this race. But voters here, over and over again, told us they've already made their choice. Donald Trump, 200%. I will be voting for Donald Trump. Support for Trump remains strong with Republicans in South Carolina, despite his legal troubles and the fact it's now a one-on-one -on -one race with their former governor. I just think that Trump is a stronger presidential figure than she is. I think she should drop out, apologize to President Trump, and join forces so we can try to save this country. Voters frequently citing Trump's long list of high-profile South Carolina endorsements. This election 
is over. None more than Senator Tim Scott, who was appointed by Haley in 2012. I think there's going to be a surprise where I think Trump's going to landslide. Light it. Yeah, I do. With Tim Scott backing him, I do. But not everyone is ready to forfeit the race. Stephanie Bennett says she's technically undecided, but likes Haley. It's her track record as the governor here, and then what she did on the United Nations. And yet she's worried in a month her vote won't matter. I wonder if people aren't going to go into it with a preconceived notion of he's already won. You know, with I just that is a fear. Like get out and vote. Don't think he's already won because I don't think he has. Former President Trump can stay on the ballot in Maine at least until the Supreme Court makes a decision on his eligibility. Maine's highest court yesterday rejected an appeal from Secretary of State Shanna Bellows asking the court to review her decision to remove Trump from the ballot. Bellows had argued delaying the decision could cause confusion for voters during the state's primary, which is coming up on March 5th. If the Supreme Court decision comes after that, voters could cast ballots for Trump that wouldn't end up being tallied. However, Maine's highest court said they would only add to the confusion by ruling before the Supreme Court. Bellows removed Trump from the ballot last year, citing the 14th Amendment, which bars any public official previously engaged in insurrection or rebellion from holding office. Trump is facing similar challenges in over 30 states. A former President Donald Trump trade advisor is expected to be sentenced today. Peter Navarro was convicted last year for not complying with a 2022 subpoena. It was issued by the former House Select Committee that investigated the January 6th Capitol breach. Last week, a judge denied his request to redo the trial. Navarro's attorneys had argued that jurors may have been influenced by political protesters when they took a break during deliberations before announcing the verdict. They claimed it was grounds for a mistrial. Federal prosecutors want a six-month prison sentence for Navarro. His attorneys, however, are asking for a sentence of no more than six months probation and a $200 fine. Coming up, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing pressure from all sides as the fight against Hamas continues. We speak to a former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel for his take on the latest developments. Allegations of anti-Semitism on campus. A House committee is seeking answers from the University of Pennsylvania. The school was recently ranked the worst category of anti-Semitic hostility in a study. Find out more. Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes are free to fly after the FAA approves an inspection plan, but the plane maker had another incident with a different model. We've got the details coming up. Welcome back. We have more trouble in the Red Sea. U.S. Central Command says Houthi terrorists fired three anti-ship missiles at a Mayer's container ship yesterday. CENTCOM says two of the missiles were shot down and that a third had impacted nearby. 
Mayersk said nearby explosions forced two ships from its U.S. subsidiary to turn around. The logistics company says the ships were carrying U.S. military supplies. The company says it's suspending Red Sea transits by its U.S. flagged vessels. There were no injuries or damage reported. Central Command says two more Houthi ready-to-launch missiles were destroyed in strikes yesterday. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. is acting in self-defense. He called the Houthi attacks that they are unpredictable and dynamic in nature. Kirby stated U.S. strikes will continue as long as the Houthis continue their attacks. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is facing pressure from all sides as disagreements on how to continue the war against Hamas builds. To shed some light on the challenges he's currently facing, we spoke with Ariel Lightstone, a former advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Uh, parliamentary democracies are messy. Uh, at any point in time, there could be a no-confidence vote. And certainly after the tragedy of October 7th, there will be a call for uh, uh, responsibility, likely for everybody. When that call happens is unclear. I think the country is fairly united right now. It used to be 98 percent. It's probably in the high 80s today in terms of being able to complete the job of eradicating or destroying Hamas's ability to attack Israel again, and that's without even addressing the challenge of the North. Today, Israel has over 200,000 citizens that are not in their homes. I believe until the security situation is resolved, nobody really wants to talk politics. Again, politicians will talk politics, but I think the people of Israel are united in getting the security situation resolved before going back to the polls. I see. So let's talk about also the exit strategy in the day after the war. What do you think will Gaza look like medium to long term? Well, here's sort of the issue. The concept of what happens the day after the war wasn't addressed with the United States of America and our allies in the process of World War II. Right. There wasn't a concern in the process of Vietnam what happens the day after. Israel was attacked breaking a ceasefire, Hamas broke a ceasefire on October 7th in the morning, the worst single day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Uh, Israel's first issue is to go ahead and make sure that something like that can never happen again. After that happens, there's an enormous opportunity for the rest of the world who's uh, screaming and clamoring for Palestinian rights and Palestinian civilians to be able to step forth and present a new way forward. What is very clear is that the old way doesn't work. It can't be under the influence of people who want to encourage and finance and grow terrorism. And it can't be under the thumb of actual terrorists. Until there's a solution for what that looks like, I think all options are on the table. Unfortunately, none of them are great options today. Thank you very much, Ariel Lightstone. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Turning now to allegations of anti-Semitism on college campuses. Lawmakers want answers. As part of an investigation, a House committee sent a letter to the University of Pennsylvania yesterday demanding the school turn over documents related to anti-Semitic incidents. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the probe. Today, Representative Virginia Fox, the chairwoman of the Republican-led House Education Committee, is requesting that UPenn respond to the document request by no later than February 7th. The committee is seeking a wide range of documents, including reports of anti-Semitic activity on campus since early 2021. It wants information on how UPenn responds to hate crimes, disciplinary actions against staff and students related to alleged targeting of Jews, documents and financial information linked to a Palestinian literature festival held on campus last year, 
and information on foreign donations, including donations from Qatar. In a letter to UPenn, Fox wrote, We have grave concerns regarding the inadequacy of Penn's response to anti-Semitism on its campus. Fox also called out UPenn over the Palestine Rights Literature Festival. Fox wrote that the festival's director, Susan Abuhawa, labeled Israelis human garbage and also allegedly said that she takes comfort in knowing that this colonial apartheid state will eventually be wiped off the map. Lawmakers launched a formal investigation into UPenn, Harvard University, and MIT last month. Following disastrous testimony about anti-Semitism from the leaders of the three schools. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? A UPenn spokesperson told CNN in a statement that the university has received the document request and will respond after they complete a review of it. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Federal Aviation Administration approving an inspection process that will allow airlines to fly their Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes again. That's after all MAX 9 models were grounded following a scary Alaska Airlines incident where the side panel blew out mid-flight. That's as the CEO of Boeing met behind closed doors with lawmakers on Capitol Hill yesterday as the company comes under intensified scrutiny. Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes could soon be back in the air. The Federal Aviation Administration approved inspection criteria for the plane that would return it to service. But the agency also took aim at Boeing, saying the Alaska Airlines incident must never happen again. The FAA said Boeing can't expand production of MAX models until all quality control issues have been resolved. The agency gave no estimate of how long that limitation would last. Alaska Airlines CEO Ben Minicucci criticized Boeing in an interview with NBC News. He said the in-flight blowout should never have happened. We found some loose bolts on uh, many of our MAX 9s. So those, many? Yeah. Uh, so those are things that are going to be rectified uh, through the inspection process. Meanwhile, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun met with senators on Capitol Hill yesterday. He's there to answer questions and assure lawmakers Boeing planes are safe. We fly safe planes. We don't Easy put cuts. airplanes in the air that we don't have 100% confidence okay. in. I'm here today in the spirit of transparency to, number one, recognize the seriousness of what you just asked. Number two, to share everything I can with our Capitol Hill interests um, and answer all their questions because they have a lot of them. Federal inspectors are on site at Boeing's plant in Renton, Washington, where the 737 MAX 9s are made. Company executives are pausing production at that facility today to focus on quality control. Alaska Airlines plans to have its grounded planes back in service by Friday, and United Airlines is aiming for Sunday. And more problems for Boeing, this time with one of its 757 airplanes. Yesterday, the nose wheel of a Delta jet of Atlanta fell off. Just before takeoff, a control tower operator saw the incident and notified the pilot and the plane was bound for Bogota, Colombia. Passengers and crew were transferred to a replacement plane and continued on to their destination. No injuries were reported. Delta confirmed the incident and apologized for any inconvenience. Boeing has some serious quality control issues there, huh? They do. And I want to read to you what another pilot that was looking on at that plane said. 
Delta 982, this is the aircraft looking at you. One of your nose tires just came off. It has just rolled off the runway behind you. Imagine getting that in your ear. Yeah, top five, top one maybe of things you do not want to hear in that cockpit. But yeah, I guess that just means that Air, uh, Airbus is able to add to its lead, being a duopoly and uh, and those narrow bodies being one of the main lines for, uh, for air, uh, airplane fleets in that industry. So Could be some ripple effects. Yeah. All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.